Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Suzanne Rain. I'm joined by my regular co-host, Ali Ansari. And today our special guest is John Nielsen-Wright, who is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Asian and Middle East Studies at the University of Cambridge and is also a Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House, the think tank in London. And we thought it was time for us to pivot east and ask him to explain the dynamics between Japan and South Korea, their relationship with America, and the impact on those relations of the worsening situation with North Korea and tensions with China. But no Chatham House rules today, John. Certainly not, no. No no Chatham House rules indeed. Uh, John, there's been a lot going on in the sort of diplomatic activity in between Japan and Korea and others. What's the background? What's going on at the moment? Well, your listeners may be aware that this Sunday we had a visit by the Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida, to Seoul to meet with his South Korean counterpart, President Yoon. This is the first reciprocal visit between the two countries by the political leaders in 12 years. In March, President Yoon travelled to Tokyo. Uh, for very important bilateral talks. And some of this is really anticipating the G7 summit, which will take place this year in Hiroshima under Japan's leadership on May 19th. It all comes in the context, of course, of the Biden administration's focus on developing a much more well-defined set of alliance relationships. And last week, President Yoon also visited Washington an important summit meeting with President Biden and the two countries announced the so-called Washington Declaration, which sets out in very exhaustive terms a set of agreements designed to enhance bilateral ties. This year is the 70th anniversary of the establishment of security relations between Washington and Seoul. So what you're seeing really unfolding is an effort by these three countries to strengthen their security partnership in the face, of course, of real challenges, uh, the most obvious proximate threat from North Korea, wider concerns about the rise of China. And all of this is designed to enhance security cooperation and assurance between alliances, as well as, of course, strengthening deterrence to ensure that bad actors, and of this, perhaps North Korea is the most obvious offender, will get a clear message that the international community is unified in trying to offset those very real security threats. It's really interesting, John, because as I've been looking into this, I've realised that the importance of individual actors, so these two, the Prime Minister of Japan, the President of South Korea, um, taking these sort of personal steps to have sort of visits to each other's countries in very short succession. And I'd like to talk about that some more, but also this sort of diplomatic to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction point. So this extraordinary ramping up in quantity by the North Koreans of missile tests, you know, 10 times more in 2022 than there were in 2021, and the impact of, of that on, you know, how everybody aligns. Can we start with the personalities? I think it would help our listeners to describe President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida and, and their political situations? Because I think that's quite an interesting dynamic in both countries. Should we mm. start with President Yoon? Yes, President Yoon, former special prosecutor who served during the last presidency of President uh, Moon Jae-in, 
Mr. Yun, as he then was, was brought in to effectively deal with the issue of political corruption. And he has taken that position very seriously. The challenge for him, I think, as president is that he doesn't really have any political experience. He's not a career politician. Um, This is not unusual in South Korean politics, given the personalization of the political system. Political parties in South Korea tend to be relatively weak and very much defined by personalities, which isn't to say there aren't very real, clear fault lines between the left and the right in South Korean politics. We can perhaps come back to that when we talk about the difficulties in the bilateral relationship with Japan. But one of the critical reasons, the sort of political dimension to this explosion of summary and meetings is that President Yun is doing badly in the polls. His ratings are at about 33%, which is pretty bad considering he's only been in office for a year. The election last year was fiercely contested. It was perhaps one of the, the most closely contested elections in South Korea's political history. Very little between the two candidates. And therefore, President Yun is looking to foreign policy successes and these high-profile relationships, most obviously with Washington, as a way of compensating for that low level of popularity. By contrast, on the other side of the East Sea, as the Koreans call it, the Sea of Japan, as it's known to the Japanese, another reflection of differences between the two countries, Prime Minister Kishida is a long-standing political veteran. He served as foreign minister under previous prime ministers, under Prime Minister Abe. In fact, then foreign minister Kishida was the longest serving post-war Japanese foreign minister. And that experience, I think, is reflected in the way he's been carrying out his role as prime minister. We've seen, much like the late former prime minister Abe, Mr. Kishida engaging in peripatetic diplomacy, traveling around the world at breakneck pace. He was recently in in Africa, visiting four African countries as part of Japan's efforts to anticipate the role of the Global South in the Hiroshima summit. And of course, he's had this important recent meeting in South Korea. He knows the foreign policy brief extremely well. His strength at home, however, is open to question. Um, The governing Liberal Democratic Party of Japan just won four out of five recent by-elections, which might sound like a pretty strong endorsement of the governing Liberal Democratic Party, but it was by quite a fine margin in each case. And so the, the government is concerned, like uh, South Korea, to have some foreign policy successes. That having been said, the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan is the long-term political survivor. It dominates the political scene in a way the People's Power Party in South Korea, the equivalent Conservative Party, doesn't really have that degree of leverage. So those two actors, in a sense of similar agendas, domestic politics, shared foreign policy concerns, both countries, I think, very focused on their traditional alliance relationship with the United States, and both countries, both Japan and South Korea, legitimately concerned about the long-term resilience of those alliance partnerships with Washington, not least because, of course, the great disruptor, former President Donald Trump, introduced a style of bilateral foreign policy and diplomacy that was so transactional, so aggressive, that it raised real concerns amongst both civil servants and politicians in Seoul and Tokyo about the resilience and durability of that alliance relationship. So thank you for that. Then the sort of next step down from this is we've got these two figures who have had two summits in two months. Those summits, as you said, follow 
a nadir, I understand, in 2018, when relations were really poor and are the first exchanges of visits for 12 years, I think people more broadly would be surprised to hear actually how how stuck in history or how rooted in history the relations between South Korea and Japan are and the extent to which there's still so much to be overcome. I was struck by some of the things Prime Minister Kishida said on his recent visit to Seoul. He said, you know, as we follow through the efforts of our predecessors who've also overcome the difficult times, there's a whole load of stuff about do you apologise, do you not apologise, when does the apology? When is the apology sufficient? Um, which seems to be also playing a part still of not only of the relationships between the two countries, but actually the politics within South Korea. So, could we have John a potted history potted. of? <laughs> I mean, there is that. There's a huge amount of um, sort of tension there, isn't there? Historical tension, which mm. which sort of underlies mm. this. And it's interesting to see the interplay of those. Really. Yes. And, you know, I mean, if you were taking a kind of a sort of rational take on the bilateral relationship, you would assume that these two countries should be natural partners, right? They face a common threat in North Korea. They're both liberal democratic states. You could say they're great examples of the success of liberal democracy in the post-war period, with, of course, the active engagement of the United States in facilitating democratic transition post-war in Japan and South Korea. And they have increasingly um, convergent mutually dependent economies. And yet, despite all of that, they are persistently divided over contentious issues of history and national identity. Part of that is simply a reflection of power differentials historically. Japan occupied the Korean peninsula for the best part of 35 years as part of its expansion as an imperial power in the pre-war period. So from 1910 to 1945, Korea was a dependency. And the Japanese empire sought to absorb Korea and to repress Korean national identity and to make Korea an extension of Japan's own imperial ambitions. And this goes back really to the 19th century and the Sino-Japanese War. For Japanese military planners and security planners, Korea was always referred to as the dagger that struck at the heart of Japan. It was seen as a promontory geographically that could threaten Japan. And Japan, of course, as an emerging modern state, borrowing the traditions of other imperial powers, most obviously the European powers who had sought to carve up the China, Chinese melon, it was considered a natural extension of that imperial identity to view the continent of Asia as an opportunity to promote Japan's own vision of imperial domination. But of course, the Koreans fought fiercely against that idea. And there was a vigorous Korean independence movement that pushed back against the idea of Japanese domination. 35 years of de facto control came to an end with the liberation at the end of World War II. And for ordinary Koreans, this was an opportunity to both throw off the yoke of Japanese colonial domination and to develop their own identity as a legitimate independent nation state. But of course, as I'm sure your listeners know, the events didn't all go according to plan. Yes, uh, exactly. And the division of the Korean Peninsula, a practical solution by the great powers at that stage, by both the United States and the Soviet Union, mm. to accommodate what was a highly factionalized political environment, both between the two sides of the Korean Peninsula, but also within what eventually became North and South Korea, sharp divisions between progressives and conservatives. 
if you like, South Korea's political evolution had been repressed, in effect, as a result of colonial domination. And modernity itself, although if you talk to Japanese economic historians, there is an argument that says, well, the the benefits of empire, this is highly controversial, and of course, generates a lot of opposition within Korea, both in North and South. But the benefits of empire, the establishment of an extensive railroad network, economic modernization, Japanese historians will tend to argue that this provided the very foundation for the takeoff of the South Korean economy in the post-war period. But it all came at an extraordinarily high price, and which is essentially political autonomy and agency. But the intervention of the Korean War meant that the division of the peninsula became reinforced. And as part of that, the Americans, of course, maintained a very strong military presence to support the emergence of a separate South Korea. A South Korea that had as its political expression a democratic form, a democratic state established in 1948, but a style of politics that was highly authoritarian. Syngman Rhee, the first president of South Korea, who had been trained and educated in the United States, spent time at Princeton, a man with a very clear mission in support of Korea's national identity, who had looked at Woodrow Wilson's expression of a new style of politics in the aftermath of World War I as the basis for nation building, and then found the practical compromises that the United States had to make in the early years of the Cold War as a as a constraint and as a disappointment. His style of politics was very authoritarian, but it was also informed by a very profound sense of anti-Japanese-ness. And that mm. posed a real challenge to the Truman administration in the early years of the Korean War. How would it effectively manage relations between Japan and South Korea? Not only, of course, had Japan maintained its colonial domination of Korea, it had also absorbed ordinary Koreans into the infrastructure of empire. So Koreans who fought alongside Japanese soldiers, Koreans who were drafted into the industries that the Japanese empire were developing and experienced, of course, great economic hardship. Korean women who themselves were brought in to serve as so-called comfort women, sex slaves for Japanese forces in the expansion of empire. And migration between Japan and South Korea meant that there were many ethnic Koreans who ended up in Japan uh, who continue to be in Japan to this day. Many of those individuals were themselves victims of exploitation, but also suffered some of the extreme hardships that ordinary Japanese suffered as a result of the war. One thing that's very significant, for example, if we look ahead to the G7 summit, many Koreans died in the bombing of Hiroshima. The G7 summit will take place in Hiroshima. It's, I think, a measure of the extent to which the leaders of the two countries are trying to sort of to address those common hardships President Yoon, when he visits in May with Prime Minister Kishida, will attend, I understand, a ceremony to commemorate those Koreans who died during uh, the bombing of Hiroshima. So the two countries are intertwined. And for ordinary Koreans, the question of how to interpret the colonial period and what counts as compensation for those 35 years of hardship and repression is very important. From the perspective of Japan, successive Japanese governments have sought to address that issue. And the key juncture, key historical event occurred in 1965, when the two countries normalized their bilateral relationship and signed an important agreement under which Japan provided financial compensation, $800 million worth of financial compensation. But this was presented not as compensation per se, but as economic assistance 
to support the emergence of what became the miracle on the Han River, this dynamic South Korean economy. So we come back to this idea of to what extent has Japan contributed to the very economic success that has meant that today South Korea is the fourth largest economy in the region, depending on which statistics you look at, the 10th largest economy in the world, certainly a very dynamic economic actor regionally and globally. So these two countries are intertwined in terms of their geopolitics, their economics, and there is no real consensus on the part of public and elite opinion in both countries about who should get credit for that. That's one reason why I think this relationship is fraught. Another factor which is perhaps worth emphasizing is the very similarities between two countries that have a profound sense of the importance of national identity helps to explain why I think there is a reluctance to acknowledge the commonalities between the two countries. In the case of South Korea, of course, the division of Korea has meant that ordinary South Koreans have had to redefine their national identity as a new type of nation state. Mm. And this has meant that identity politics uh, has been a signature issue in the way political parties present their agendas. The left defines it in terms of democratic legitimacy and democratic transition. South Korea had a series of authoritarian governments up until the early 1990s. And the right, by contrast, in South Korea defines national identity in terms of economic success. On the other side, within the context of Japan, debates over identity politics are just as intense. And that's partly a function of the nature of the termination of World War II and the US occupation of Japan with the left embracing the idea of constitutional revision and the emergence of democratic politics, and the right conservatives still anxious to portray the imperial past in ways that have a positive side as well as a negative side. So you have split communities in both countries, two new states, relatively new states, as modern functioning liberal democratic states, seeking to define themselves as uh, strong, coherent countries, but divided over their own past and reluctant to accept the similarities between them. Thank you, John. I I want to, sorry, Ali, you want to speak, but I want to speak first. So my question, John, is a question about the extent to which this dealing with the narratives of the past, dealing with the question about apologies and reparations, is now playing out in the internal politics within the country. So so I think um, President Yoon, he made a statement whenever it was last week, where he said, we should stay away from thinking that we must not make a step forward for our future cooperation because our history issues are not settled completely. And he's, I think that's in the context of the fact that he's been accused by the Liberal, because he's a Conservative, he's been accused by the Liberals of essentially, you know, making concessions to Japan before South Korea's got anything in return and also warmongering, being too close to America when the so so is this this is making him vulnerable, very, isn't it? Yes, very vulnerable at home. I mean the issue approximate kind of cause this latest controversy is a case in which plaintiffs representing families that have been caught up in the Japanese imperial expansion and served as forced labor demanded compensation from Japanese contemporary Japanese corporations that had been part of that industrial machine during the pre-war period. And the South Korean Supreme Court voted in their favor. So it was potentially conceivable that the assets of Japanese companies were going to be impounded and then redistributed to those families. 
This created a huge crisis bilaterally. The Union administration, when it came to power, made it very clear that it wanted to resolve this. But as a special prosecutor, President, former special prosecutor, President Yoon could not be seen to be interfering with the role of the court in making this important decision. So this was the conundrum that the two leaders faced. How do you get beyond this issue in a way that doesn't aggravate opinion in Japan? And also, the Japanese government's position has been consistently that the 1965 Normalization Treaty resolved all of those pre-war issues in perpetuity. And the Japanese foreign ministry has always taken a strong position about the importance of observing these legal agreements. And the perception in Japan was that successive Korean governments had kept reinterpreting past agreements. So there was a great deal of irritation and frustration in the political establishment. The compromise solution that President Yun's team came up with was to reach an understanding. This was announced in March when he visited Tokyo, that a fund would be established to provide that financial compensation. And the funding for this would come exclusively from the South Korean side. So this was the compromise, this was the concession that the South Koreans made, uh, and already some of that money has been distributed to, I understand, 10 families, by no means all. Um, the opposition, the left in South Korea, is representing this as a total sellout to Japan, because in effect it is a unilateral admission that the Japanese position has not changed, um, and it is a necessary step in order to provide at least some degree of compensation that will satisfy these families. But it is basically South Korea accepting that the way out of this predicament is to make that concession. This has been described as a betrayal. It also comes on the back of other issues which remain still very contentious. The comfort women question, which I mentioned earlier, we have to go back to the administration of then President Park Geun-hye. Park Geun-hye, of course, a controversial figure in her own right, the daughter of the former dictator of South Korea, Park Chung-hee, who presided over that normalization agreement back in 1965. It was President Park Geun-hye, the first female president of South Korea, who in 2015 reached an agreement with then Prime Minister Abe to move beyond this comfort women question, to basically effectively say that the South Korean government would put this issue behind them, and would never raise it again with Japan. In return, Prime Minister Abe effectively said the government will provide funding to compensate the victims of that part of the imperial legacy. When President Moon succeeded Park Geun-hye, who was impeached, a further reflection of these intense partisan divisions between left and right in South Korea, one of the first things he did was to annul that agreement and say it has to be renegotiated with Japan. So there is this history between the two countries of apparently clear agreements not being guaranteed. That's why by the time we got to 2018 and this Supreme Court ruling in favor of the plaintiffs in the forced labor issue, there was absolutely zero appetite on the part of the Japanese government to reach any compromise. In fact, I would argue that, in a sense, what we've seen injected into the bilateral relationship at the very highest levels is a type of emotional politics that has been hugely divisive. It was Prime Minister Abe, in the face of then President Moon's decision to tear up that early agreement, who imposed economic sanctions on South Korea. South Korea was removed from what was called the so-called white list. States that were seen as good, reliable security partners had access to critical technology from Japan to deal with threats such as North Korea. 
This was uh, an action that was very damaging to the bilateral relationship. It put bilateral ties in the deep freeze. It meant effectively there was no effective bilateral coordination, certainly at the levels of the prime minister and the president. And it's taken President Yun to move beyond that through this negotiated settlement. So what we're seeing is an important set of agreements to strengthen security and economic cooperation, to remove some of those retaliatory measures. South Korea is now back on the white list. Security cooperation is being enhanced. There is an announcement just a couple of days ago that South Korea and Japan will cooperate, for example, in sharing critical early warning radar technology to deal with the missile threat from North Korea. These are not insignificant um, agreements. But despite all of this elite-level coordination, the sense of disgruntlement on the part of publics in both countries remains very, very intense. I, I find that extraordinary, actually, that, as you say about this whitelist, that they sort of removed them from the whitelist, so they weren't sharing import. I mean, is this purely sort of defensive uh, sort of technology or, you know, military technology you're talking about? Well, it has general? a dual role because, of course, it supports the semiconductor industry in South Korea, but it led yeah. to a momentary crisis when then President Moon threatened to remove South Korea from something called GSOMIA, which is a very important bilateral security pact between South Korea and Japan. The United States was alarmed, understandably, by this development and sought to pressure South Korea to rethink that decision, which fortunately did happen in terms of the security partnership. But once again, it has complicated relations between two actors who should be working much more closely together. And it's taken the Biden administration to really try and, I think, make the argument to both sides that they need to do much more. The United States has always sought to play that role. Even in 1965, it was then the US ambassador to Japan, Edwin Reichow, former academic at Japan Hand, who sought behind the scenes to try and bring Seoul and Tokyo closer together. Now, if you read Cold War historians from the United States, the, 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 the conventional narrative presents the United States as the decisive interlocutor. I think that's exaggerated. My own research has sort of suggested that there's much more local agency at work and we're seeing a lot more of that in the current environment. But of course, the United States is the preponderant power, and it's in their interest to try and knock heads together. But there is a real limit to what can be done by Washington. So basically, the United States, I mean, you could say, I mean, what I was going to ask, the United States in a way sort of masked rather inadequately by what, in a sense, what you're saying. I mean, masked the sort of divisions, those sort of historical tensions that existed between South Korea and, and Japan. Would you say that sort of rising China is now refocusing minds? I mean, is, is that now the focus that's urging them really? Because, I mean, as you said, the, the experience of Trump has probably given them a bit of a, a, a bit of a wake-up call in some senses and a bit of a worry. And obviously, you know, Biden is trying to, to compensate for that. But I was thinking about the, 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 the general mood in East Asia, you know, when we were thinking about the new, you know, well, I'll uh, suppose pivot east, but also AUKUS and this sort of thing with Australia. You know, is there a general mood that the new motivation, in a sense, for overcoming some of these historical tensions is really, you know, to see this not as a North Korean, but really a Chinese, uh, a Chinese challenge, if you will? It's definitely the case that the China issue has shaped the thinking in Tokyo and Seoul about the need to cooperate with the United States, but for very different reasons, I think. You know, Japan has obviously long been concerned about the threat from China, territorial disputes over the Senkaku Islands, the repeated incursions by Chinese naval vessels into the waters around what they call the Diao Islands, those Senkaku Islands. And, you know, we've seen under 
Prime Minister Kishida a step change in defence planning, three new national security documents which unambiguously identify the threat that China represents, a commitment to a doubling of defence expenditure, a shift in defence doctrine away from the norms of the Cold War period when Russia was the principal challenge. All of this is, I think, in the security space, a recognition that Japanese defence and political planners take the China threat very, very seriously. And of course, they're also keen to ensure that the United States remains bound in as their security partner in addressing that threat. Article 5 of the US-Japan Mutual Security Treaty, which President Biden has been very publicly keen to emphasize, provides that guarantee. Even though the United States makes no claim about the the legitimacy or otherwise of those different national claims over the territory, it will, as Japan's only official ally, um, provide that security assurance. The qualification, however, when it comes to Japan's approach towards China is that, of course, China remains Japan's most important economic partner. Mm. So there is always a tension. And the economic community in Japan has always recognized the importance of maintaining strong investment and trade ties with China. Even though supply chain resilience is now ensuring that Japanese companies are being encouraged to diversify, primarily to Southeast Asia, you can't simply flick a switch and change that dynamic. So there is always a tension. But if you look at the political debate over China within Japan, I think you've seen a hardening of the position within the LDP. And even though the business community maintains the importance of maintaining those ties, there is certainly a movement much more closer to the position of the Biden administration where China is concerned. By contrast, for Korea, if you like, geography is destiny. I mean, the reality of being a continental power as well as South Korea's own economic dependence on China, which is huge, has meant that historically, throughout the post-war period, administrations, whether of a conservative or of a progressive hue, have always hedged over the China issue. They've always sought, in a sense, to avoid being trapped in a binary choice between Washington and Beijing. And that continues to be the case. For example, in December of last year, the UN administration announced its new Indo-Pacific strategy. Its language on China is much more emollient. There is no characterization of China as a threat. It's about practical coordination and cooperation. That's not only, of course, driven by the trade agenda, but of course, it's also shaped by the question of North Korea, because China, since 1961, of course, has been a nominal ally of the DPRK. And China is arguably, depending on your interpretation, because of its proximity, its practical closeness to the DPRK, providing the bulk of North Korea's food and energy assistance, China is a hugely important actor in either potentially restraining North Korea or providing some sort of diplomatic settlement. And Beijing, of course, knows it can use that card if South Korea moves too explicitly in a direction that supports the Biden administration's more critical position of of the PRC. And so in that sense, there is an important divergence between the way in which Seoul and Tokyo handle the China issue And there are limits to what South Korea can do. It's not a member of the Quad. Its own Indo-Pacific strategy is, as I say, somewhat compromised. And, you know, on some of these broader security threats, such as the question of Taiwan, historically, South Korea's leaders have been very cautious. It's been quite striking. President Yun, maybe this is a reflection of his lack of political and diplomatic experience, has been much more outspoken on the Taiwan issue. And that has generated pushback from Beijing. Can I ask John, because uh, picking up on that point, the much more outspoken point, because he's also been 
outspoken, uh, more outspoken than many Southeast Asian countries on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, he's made some, she's condemned Russia and Russia's hit back. Mm. And there's been a number of suggestions that, that obviously South Korea is a major producer of artillery and ammunition that, that South Korea will, will provide that to Ukraine. And, and the justification is, well, we, we know what it's like to be occupied. I mean, there, mm. there's a whole load, again, the history comes right back at us. I'm just thinking we've got not very long left. Can we talk a bit more about the Washington Declaration? Because that fits into this question, essentially, about everybody taking sides or, or, or trying to. And I think as a result of the Washington Declaration, we've now got presence of nuclear-capable American assets around the Korean Peninsula for the first time since 1981. So is this escalation to deter or is it just escalation to, to escalate? What's happening? I think it's, um, it's escalation to both deter and to assure. So the commitment to send a nuclear-armed submarine uh, into the waters near South Korea, importantly not the deployment of US nuclear assets on the Korean Peninsula, because since 1991, the United States has been very explicit in not doing that, precisely to provide, if you like, the space for bilateral agreement between the two Koreas. And in fact, the two Koreas reached an agreement in 1992 to support a nuclear-free Korean Peninsula, which of course has been violated by North Korea. The presence of a nuclear-armed submarine with a, with a policy of neither declaring the presence of nuclear weapons or not, that ambiguity is there to send a signal to North Korea that it needs to rein in its provocations. But also, at the moment, South Korea is very concerned about the reliability of that nuclear extended deterrence framework. 70% plus of South Korean public opinion supports the idea of going independent. Uh, and one part of the Washington Declaration was a, a quid pro quo between the two countries. Washington has agreed to set up a so-called nuclear consultative group, which is a, in a sense, it's modeled a little bit on the European US-NATO nuclear partnership. It's designed to enhance coordination of nuclear deterrence planning. In return for this establishment of a group, South Korea has agreed to reaffirm its commitment to the NPT regime, hugely important, of course, in terms of avoiding any arms race in the region and looking ahead to Hiroshima, where we will see, of course, a non-nuclear Japan reaffirming its NPT credentials. You can see why Washington was so keen to reach this agreement. It's not a so-called nuclear sharing agreement. The command and control of nuclear weapons remains unambiguously in, in control of Washington, but it is designed to dampen these concerns about the reliability of the alliance relationship. So looking ahead to the G7, which is I think by the time this podcast comes out, it may have just happened. So this might be a difficult question because we could have a conversation. But that has kind of two main themes, doesn't it? And one is working out how to reinstate the rules-based international order, um, whether that's even possible anymore. And secondly, reaching out to the global south. I think there's a realisation among the kind of Western members of the G7 that Japan is feels more important than it has done for a long time as, mm. as, a, as a part of that group. What, what would good look like from the summit? Depends from whose perspective we're looking at it. And I think from Japan's point of view, <laughs> um, a clear agenda that reinforces its global role. Um, and we've seen that, you know, there's talk of 
efforts to deal with pandemic planning and resilience. Uh, that will be part of the discussion. Prime Minister Kishida's visit to Africa is also anticipating the concerns of the Global South, and that relates to the pandemic proposal. Uh, we will see some discussion of AI and um, how that features in global politics. But I think, no, Prime Minister Kishida himself comes from Hiroshima. This is really personal for him, This the NPT regime and security coordination. We will see a trilateral meeting between Biden, Yun, and Kishida, which is further amplification of this improved trilateral coordination over security issues. There's some talk that Japan might eventually become part of the nuclear consultative group to strengthen resilience and alliance coordination. And we'll also see, of course, important reinforcement of the European commitment to the Indo-Pacific. Japan, of course, in a way, it was Mr. Abe many years ago who first coined the phrase free and open Indo-Pacific. Japan has, I think, moved into the kind of vision business in a way that is very unusual. We didn't think of Japan in the Cold War as a country that set the terms of trade rhetorically. There's a little bit of competition, I think, between South Korea and Japan in this space. Both countries like to think of themselves as policy entrepreneurs, if you like. And that's why we see whenever a new president comes in in South Korea, an effort to define that role. Just to add one small thing, if I may, on the issue of Russia, it's true that President Yoon was outspoken. He gave a speech at Harvard when he was in the U.S., in which he made it pretty clear his thinking on the Ukraine issue, supporting Ukraine and, and calling out Russia in no un- uncertain terms. However, Russia, of course, also is a key player potentially in any solution over the D- DPRK. And that's one reason why South Korea has not provided any direct military assistance to the Ukraine. It's all been humanitarian. It's been filtered through uh, military assistance to Poland, which can then be in turn passed on to the Ukraine. Mm. So it's a bit of a fudge. Mm. Um, and it reflects, I think, this ambivalence on the security issue when it comes to dealing with Russia. But to come back to Hiroshima, I think what will look good will be a reinforcement of alliance ties, a commitment to coordination with Europe, uh, a willingness to be able to address the China issue, despite these differences. And of course, with the global South, and particularly when it comes to the position of African and Southeast Asian countries, there are real, I think, divisions about how best to handle China. I think we'll see also, I think, Japan trying to take a clearer position on the values issue, on on the importance of the so-called split between uh, autocracies and democracies. We've seen under both Mr. Abe and also under Mr. Kishida a much more explicit willingness to talk about not only the rule of law, but the importance of democratic values. Mm. That's important, at least. I mean, that's a move in the right direction. It's interesting, though, because that raises lots of questions about competitor groupings like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has had a meeting in Goa recently, which which is a mix of countries who are essentially massive democracies, but with authoritarian twinges and countries which you could not reasonably describe as democracies. So it feels like we're seeing... Um, there's a sort of a gradual realignment, though, isn't there? I mean, do you not think, in a sense, as you're saying, I mean, that you're absolutely right, Suzanne, there's a sort of a fudge, but there's also a logic. I mean, there is a logic of what's going on, isn't there? I mean, I, I mean, that's the way I see it. I mean, I, you know, I don't know, John, if you complete, I mean, obviously, they're trying to, and, and, I, and I think you've, you've said brilliantly, really, these, you know, multiplicity of sort of competing, you know, tensions and, you know, as great for our podcast, you know, this sort of, the historical context of current geopolitics in that sense. 
But there is, to my mind, a sort of a logic of where this is going in some ways, that people are beginning to step up and realize that, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it anymore. I don't, I don't know. Am I, you know, am I being too simplistic? I mean, probably, but... I don't think you're being simplistic at all. I think you're, you're highlighting the kind of um, the dilemma. Mm. Um, and I think one of the interesting differences, for me at least, is, you know, if you look at, even before Biden took office, Jake Sullivan wrote this really interesting piece in The Atlantic where he talked about a foreign policy for the middle class, which in a way is designed to shore up democracy at home. Right to deliver on the foreign policy front so that voters will feel that this ambitious agenda of being engaged is actually supporting their pocketbook issues. And if you argue that economic vulnerability drives populism, you can see the argument behind that. That's very different from the Cold War, where the, the kind of line of causality was reversed. You know, democracy was broadly seen as secure at home and was therefore being promoted abroad in the face of the existential challenge between communism and liberal democratic values. Now it's the sense that democracy is imperiled at home that requires a very proactive foreign policy. In contrast, if you look at Japan and South Korea, there isn't the same sense, perhaps there should be, that's a whole different story, yeah. of a kind of um, political existential crisis at home. I would argue, actually, that the tensions between left and right in South Korea and the fragility of political institutions in South Korea makes actually... South Korea potentially right for its own populist reaction. Japan, similarly, there was a poll that came out recently that said that 52% of young people don't trust politics in Japan. But I don't think the leaders feel that sense of vulnerability. And therefore, for Japan and South Korea, the urgency of promoting democratic norms abroad is less clear-cut than it is in the case of the United States. But of course, it's a message that resonates well with the Biden team, which is why you're seeing it being played out, I think, in terms of the language of the summit. Okay, thank you very much, John. That was an education. Um, that certainly was an education. <laughs> certainly an education for me. I have to say, I thought that was uh, really illuminating. Thank you. And it's 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 so helpful to have it explained like that because it means that uh, we can watch it now unfold, um, being able better to interpret the little signals. And it will be fascinating to see actually what happens politically for the key characters, but also how the hardening of or the deepening of those alliances then shape choices made by countries that essentially they're allied against. So, um, you know, what will be the impact of North Korea on, on North Korea and China? So, John, we will continue to watch it. We will have you back when things have unfolded a bit more. And we're very grateful to you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation a great deal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.